Hello, this is Stephen. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Now, we've covered all sorts of subjects in our search for counterculture on this show. Music, clothes, books, drugs, lifestyles, love, death, protest, dreams, food, even archaeology. But in this episode, we're turning inwards to the subject of the mind, to the subject of madness. But before that, thanks to Ronnie again, to Will, Cecilia and Babs for their support, suggestions and tips. Keep them coming, we love it. You can join them, bureauoflostculture.com. Now, before David Bowie died, he compiled a list of his hundred favourite, or perhaps most influential books, and one of them was a book written around 1962 called The Divided Self. We're going to hear more about Bowie and probably why he chose it later. But The Divided Self and the books that followed it are perhaps rather forgotten now, like their author, the psychiatrist R.D. Lang. But in the 60s, they became hugely popular, propelling Lang from relative obscurity in the medical and psychiatric worlds to the forefront of the countercultural stage. He grew his hair, he wore beads, he took acid, he toured America speaking to large audiences, bit like Jordan Peterson now, minus the acid and the beads. And he was asked to pronounce on all sorts of matters far beyond the subject of madness. For a while, he became a sort of guru before he disappeared into his own shadow. And for five years in the 60s, he was the initiator of an extraordinary, radical and controversial psychiatric experiment here in London, in the East End. We're going to hear something about that. And a lot more about the book, The Divided Self, from my guest today, the neuropsychiatrist Anthony David. He wrote the introduction to the latest edition of The Divided Self, and he's come into the Servo Studios to talk about R.D. Lang and about his own work and his own book, Into the Abyss. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture, Anthony. Hi, thanks very much for inviting me. How are you? I'm very well. Please call me Tony. <laughs> Tony, okay, right, Tony, yeah. Rather than me... Having a go at your mm -hmm. bio, why mm -hmm. don't you tell us, first of all, who you are? Sure. Okay. Well, I'm Tony David. I'm the director of the Institute of Mental Health at University College London. Uh, I'm a neuropsychiatrist and I work at the National Hospital for Neurology, Queen Square. I qualified in medicine in Glasgow University, mm. um, worked in various medical specialties and then came to down to the Maudsley Hospital, which is in South London, mm. did my training there. Ended up spending a lot of time there until very recently moved up to UCL. Mm. And what is a neuropsychiatrist? So we're interested in, in the sort of interface between neurology and psychiatry. So it's people who have neurological disorders or conditions or brain disease or damage, and then they have psychiatric mental health problems as a consequence of that. Um, so it's taking a kind of biological brain-based view mm. of mental illness. But of course, a lot of people think they have a brain disorder and they actually don't. Um, so that's another group of people that we see and uh, can be very interesting. We're going to come back to this towards the end of our conversation, mm. which is your book, Into the Abyss, which is a wonderful, moving, at times funny, at times <laughs> fearful 
uh, book, which has got you know some of the case studies of people that you've worked with and some of your thoughts on on that. I just just thought I'd read this a little bit. It says we cannot know how to fix a problem until we understand its causes. But even for some of the most common mental health problems, specialists argue whether the answers lie in a person's biology, their psychology, or their circumstances. By which I mean, I think you mean their life, right? Correct. Um, and you're actually at that kind of very inter- interesting intersection of those three. Yeah, I, I mean, I think. I think people can't be understood unless you take all of those elements, what mm. we call biopsychosocial. It's a bit of a mouthful, mm. um, but that's really the truth of it, and it's mm. in the intersection of all of that that we can start to understand why we are who we are. See, Patrick believes he's dead. Jennifer's schizophrenia medication helped with her voices, but did it cause Parkinson's? Emma's in a coma. Or is she just refusing to respond? So there's some of your many case studies down the years. Uh, Into the Abyss, uh, which is, by the way, a very, very readable book. So I recommend that. But Tony, just to come back to the subject of this conversation. Mm -hmm. So I got in contact and asked you if you'd come and talk about Ardy Lang. And I was fascinated and I've been fascinated with him for a long time because he was this countercultural figure. He was a psychiatrist like you, you got quite parallel lives, started mm-hmm. in Glasgow, came out to London, mm-hmm. did the medical training, mm-hmm. did all that stuff, and then evolved into a guru-like figure, mm-hmm. right? Controversial, super controversial, perhaps somewhat forgotten now by the culture, yeah. maybe not by the psychiatric profession, I don't know, but he became very famous. Mm-hmm. Um, his book sold millions of copies which is strange because they're mm. quite difficult to mm. read. Um, the only person I could really compare him with now, which is is Jordan Peterson, mm-hmm. right, who not in terms of their thinking, mm. but in terms of what happened to them. You know, Jordan Peterson, somewhat mm. anti-establishment, mm. controversial figure who went from being a kind of academic in an out-of-the-way place in Canada to becoming mm. this global countercultural, possibly, yes. guru figure. Uh, that's what happened to Lang, isn't it? And isn't it strange? Yeah, I mean, it was very unpredicted. Uh, and as I, I said in the, that introduction, when you start reading the book, The Divided Self, it's very technical, mm. especially the early chapters, a lot of existential philosophy. And you think, how how can this be uh, a counterculture book that students w- walked around with it in their pockets and <laughs> sort of maybe pretended they were mm. reading it? Um, it's, quite a, it's quite a journey. Um, I mean, obviously... It struck a chord with people beyond psychiatry and mental health. And I think that's really what was its appeal. He was someone who felt he could know you. He, he, he knew you from the inside in a way that no one else did or could. And I think that was the key. And his idea that you could have this false self that only you knew about. The trouble was it was in conflict with the self that you presented to other people, that other people demanded of you. And sometimes that tension just literally led to a break. So I think a lot of people could identify with that, even if they didn't have the severe mental health problems that people with psychosis and schizophrenia Mm -hmm. do show. 
So I think we're all probably familiar with the idea of having kind of multiple selves, aren't we? You know, how I am at home, how you are at home, maybe with your family, is very different probably than you, how you are in professionally. So we, we're kind of used to that, and we kind of mm. hold those different selves in balance somehow, don't we? Yes. But he talks about it's the kind of false self, which we're sort of hiding somewhat. Yes. From, and and the, if the sort of difference between that and our kind of public self becomes too extreme, there's this split occurs, hence the, the, divi- the divide, yes. right? Yes, and, and not just the public self, which as you say is quite a an obvious idea mm. that it, it's something a bit deeper that it's about how you are with your family and and mm. how you've been brought up mm. not just to be but to actually think mm. so his idea was that it, it wasn't just about superficialities it went to the heart of, of of who you were in a way that was really very could be very destructive that was his theory anyway mm. you know this was the 60s and people were beginning to break away from the sort of austerity of the 50s and you had the psychedelic era mm. so it did tap into that uh, zeitgeist you know he was a very studious quite intellectual young man perhaps troubled perhaps a little bit fraught himself finding himself in the limelight and i think that does strange things to you <laughs> Uh, as suddenly people are hanging on to your every word they want you to come and talk at their conferences and hang out and it can slightly go to your head yeah, I mean, you can get quite inflated, right? Yeah. Image of him as this 28, 30-year-old mm. when he wrote The Divided Self, which is pretty amazing to write a book like that at that age. Roll on 10 mm. years or so, he's, he's, he's got long hair, beads, sitting cross-legged on a stage, talking to a kind of a rather worshipping audience, right, of not psychiatrists no. or medical people at all, right? I think that's what happened. When you're criticising the family or the society, People are going to ask you, well, okay, what, what are we going to do instead? Mm. He probably hadn't thought that through quite so much, but offered to him was this idea that perhaps the, the philosophy of the East was something uh, that might be healthier. It didn't put the emphasis on the individual or the family. And that all was wrapped up with, you know, that era and with drug taking and so mm. on. So I think he, was, he found himself being drawn to that because he was having to come up with an alternative. Mm. On the fly, as it were. Yeah, on mm. the fly, exactly. So I've got this theory, which I wanted mm. to float past you. It starts in the divided self, and it becomes a repeated kind of mantra mm-hmm. in a way for him. Insanity is a rational response to an insane world. Mm. And I wondered whether in the 60s, when people were taking a lot of LSD in particular, and it was having very radical effects on them, and you know, I'm going to confess here from my own sort of psychedelic use, what that opened up for me was a kind of vision that actually the reality, let's call it that, that we kind of operate in Mm. is one version of reality, a metaphor, if you like. Mm. I think a lot of people got opened up to that. And also, as you mentioned, then there was this, hold on, this 1950s vision of Mm. society, which our parents and the government are putting forward Mm. is just is a kind of construct, right? He was kind of coming out Mm. and saying, yeah, Absolutely, you're right. That's That's got a psychiatric, psychological mm. basis. The, the society around us is this thing that we've constructed. Could that be it? That's why he tapped into something mm. that people were experiencing, probably through psychedelic drug use. I think it's very closely connected. I mean, but there's an evolution of the thinking there. First of all, it was um, not only is this sort of post-war austerity stifling 
and lacking in creativity. His first departure was, it could actually be very damaging to your health. It could really stretch and, and damage your mind. But then, as, as I was saying, it led to this idea, well, what's the alternative? So I think at that point, he was still saying, we can look for the causes of this damage or distress and see it as an illness. He then began to see this idea somewhat cliched that, you know, the mad are the only sane people and the world is mad. You know, that came a bit later. And, you know, I think that is a little bit glib because it doesn't really reflect what's going on for people who really are struggling very seriously with, with, with mental illness. All the people around them who are struggling with the people who were struggling with mental illness. Exactly. And they felt that they were being blamed in some way mm. uh, just because their son or daughter or, or brother or sister um, w- was in trouble and was needing mm. help. So the idea that it was all their fault and that there was an alternative, that was a bit of a leap. Mm. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and yes, the idea that um, there are alternative realities, I think fine you know that's quite a, an interesting philosophical p- position it's probably bolstered by people's experience with with drugs or other other experiences perhaps it's enough to say there are different constructions of reality rather than than to label them as some are sane and some are <laughs> insane that seems to be a little bit too prescriptive mm. to me also this is the one that we're most of us are operating yes. in, so we've kind of got, got to get on with it at yeah, some point. Yeah, yeah. So this quote of his, the cracked mind of the schizophrenic may let in light which does not enter intact minds of many sane people whose minds are closed. Mm. It is quite a romantic yes. view of uh, a certain kind of mental health issues, isn't yes. it? Yeah. But um, Tony, before we go on, because I think it is really useful, it would certainly be useful for me and I guess for many people listening, just to understand what we're talking mm-hmm. about. I mean, when we say this word schizophrenia, mm-hmm. schizophrenic or schizoid, mm-hmm. what do we actually what does it actually mean? Well, it's a, it's a good question, and people in psychiatry still wrestle with it, with the terminology as well as its meaning. We don't talk about schizophrenics anymore. Mm. That's not the right sort of terminology. People with schizophrenia is all right, and then there's the idea that there's a spectrum um, between a person who's you know, very unwell uh, and characterized by having hallucinations, often auditory hallucinations, hearing voices, for example, having delusions, you know, not just feeling slightly under threat by people, but paranoid to an extent that's way beyond normal uh, or common understanding. And, and they're not just ideas that come and go there, and the person's life becomes dominated by that. That's really schizophrenia. Uh, but there is a spectrum where people sometimes will hear voices or have mm. other hallucinatory experiences, not necessarily drug-induced, but it doesn't sort of take root. There are people who might f- seem a little bit odd, have ideas that we don't necessarily agree with, of ways of thinking that are a little bit outside the norm. And sometimes we call that schizoid or schizotypal. And I think there you might find that you've got this balance between seeing the world in a different and perhaps creative way, uh, and yet not leaving the shores of sanity so much that you can't really do anything with it. So I think the romanticism comes in where you take the kind of extreme 
form and think that that's in any mm. way good or positive mm. because it really probably isn't. So another one of his uh, uh, quotes, again on the slightly romantic side, because he said, madness need not be all breakdown, it may also be breakthrough. It's potential liberation and renewal as well as enslavement and existential death. And then small wonder that the list of artists in say the last 150 years have become shipwrecked is yeah. very long. So he's making a connection there between sort of the, you know, the mm. creative mind as well. Didn't he also talk about the fact that, as you just said then, it's a matter of degree that we maybe all of us have actually mm. had moments of paranoia and um, you know possibly hallucinations, mm-hmm. but where we felt pretty close to the edge. It's not... Mm-hmm. Um, that there's a kind of doorway which you go through and on the other side is madness. No, it's definitely a journey or a slope, whichever (laughs) way you want to put it. The idea that an illness is somehow a rebirthing, I feel that's taking it too far. Mm. But on the other hand, people who've had, let's say, a mental breakdown, it's very important for that person to make sense of it in some way and for their loved ones, friends, as well as doctors, therapists, that's a very worthwhile endeavor, Mm. rather than just seeing it just like a broken leg Mm. that has to heal. Well, you know, our minds aren't like broken Mm. bones. Um, We have to try and make some personal sense of it. Whether the journey was worth it, a lot of people who have suffered in that way would probably say no. Mm. But there is a certain journey element. Mm. Um, Also, I would say that medication or other treatment is probably necessary to help the person put those pieces back. And it doesn't preclude it becoming something of a spiritual or or learning, growing journey. Mm. There, the physical illness analogy is right. You're not going to get over the fever without a bit of you know, antibiotic. Again, that's one of your uh, subjects, isn't it, as mm-hmm. well? The causes can be multiple and varied and maybe even mysterious. Yes. Right, so that the treatment itself needs to be multiple and varied. Exactly. And possibly even mysterious. For artists, in terms of what Lang was talking about, the, the kind of archetypal or the iconic person would be somebody like Van Gogh, right, mm-hmm. where their actual work is extraordinary and probably couldn't be separated from their experience, however difficult mm. and strange that was. You know, and but of course it ends in tragedy. Yes, I mean I'm not really an art or historian expert, but um, I've read accounts that show that um, when he was very unwell mentally, he wasn't very creative. He mm. didn't really do much. I mean we we see famous pictures of him in in the asylum, mm. um, and he paints his sort of carers and his mm. and his room because he spent a lot of time there and it was often when he was recovering he'd pick right. up his paints again <laughs> and what, that's what he had in front of him. So, so again, uh, I think the actual process of creativity is not really helped mm. by mental illness. On the other hand, if we take a step back, someone like Van Gogh obviously was capable of seeing the world in a, in a unique way. So part of his personality, part of his vulnerability to mental illness, I put it like that, part of that was also uh, a germ of his creativity. Mm. You know, you mentioned then drugs and various other treatments. Mm-hmm. So one thing which it seems that Lang was challenging, which mm-hmm. probably made him popular, even if people didn't actually read the book, but they'd heard about it, was that he was 
challenging the sort of orthodoxy, yeah. right? We became associated with this so- so-called anti-psychiatry yeah. movement, which is something which sounds a bit countercultural, mm. doesn't it? And um, this book comes out and it changes things for him. But what I liked about it, and I think what actually connects it with your mm. book in a way, is that it's saying these people, it's not like a broken leg mm. and they're not kind of damaged organisms. Mm-hmm. There's a different way to treat them. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could talk about that, the sort yes. of the psychiatry that he was railing against yeah. uh, and the sort of a bit mm-hmm. more compassionate, humanistic yes. sort of move that he was trying to promote. I think that's his real legacy and that's what why we should remember him. He did introduce that sort of humanity and compassion into mental health care, which at that time was very regimented. Uh, anonymous you know the idea of institutionalization was also came through again around about that same time so there was a head of steam so we can't really attribute all the change to 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 Lang and his followers something was changing already and and uh, the the way we look at mental health and mental illness and the way we care for people was becoming more humane and he he speeded up that process undoubtedly but at that point he wasn't about throwing it out completely and the idea of an anti-psychiatry movement he didn't identify with that he wasn't for that he was for a kind of psychiatry in which asylum in the pure sense was at the core you know somewhere where you could be where you could feel safe and protected he was all for that he wasn't about let's just raise these places to the ground, uh, pretend it doesn't happen. So even within the countercultural movement, there was some tensions Mm. um, and split. So I think that early period was his most interesting and productive. Mm. He then kind of, as we were saying, got perhaps seduced by um, talking about much wider issues, and he kind of lost his roots in mental health and was talking about society and religion etc fine it was often quite interesting but it didn't have the same seriousness i don't think you know across the pond the other sort of text from around mm-hmm. about the same time which did the work too although it's a work of fiction mm-hmm. of course is one flew of the cuckoo's nest mm-hmm. which is ken casey's novel right yeah which was sort of showing it from the inside, from the kind of, inverted commas, patient's point of view, right? And, of course, the film mm-hmm, that followed, yeah. which kind of made a lot of people angry yeah. <laughs> about what had been going on, because it, I guess, I don't know this, but um, in those treatments that were going on in the 50s, mm-hmm. they were quite brutal, weren't they? Some of them, the electroshock therapy and, you know, the, the heavy medication, which was just coming in from the big pharma and stuff like that. The way it's depicted in, in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is, is horrific. Uh, and cinema always depicts uh, asylums and mental and electroshock. They never talk. They never really show you just taking your medication and feeling a little bit better because that doesn't really it's make cell them, seats. Yeah, it's cinema. not. It's not going to pack them yeah. in, is it? I still think there is uh, a role for ECT mm. the- therapy, but it's given under an anaesthetic. It's it's uh, not widely used. It's used mostly for people with very, very severe depression rather mm-hmm. than for schizophrenia. But the point being that those institutions were 
at times overly coercive. They didn't value people's individuality. They didn't sort mm. of help people um, to re rehabilitate, and that mm. deserved to be shone a light upon. Yeah, I suppose in Mournful of the Cuckoo's Nest, you know, the, the Native American guy as well, there's yeah. something then about cultural, you know, cultural differences which are not being kind of acknowledged yes. somehow, right? Which again, I think that was point well made. And I think now we're much more sensitive to cultural differences. But on the other hand, as you say, there's a romanticism about mm. it as well. Uh, this quotes noble savage kind of idea mm. Mm. Um, was was being played with a little bit there. Um, in The Divide itself, a quote from Lang. He says, a little girl was 17 in a mental hospital told me she was terrified because the atom bomb was inside her. That's a delusion. The statesmen of the world who boast and threaten that they have doomsday weapons are far more dangerous and far more estranged from reality than many of the people on whom the label psychotic is fixed. Mm. What do you think about that? Yeah, you can see why that... Rang, rang a <laughs> yeah, few bells. Yeah, and got a few people cheering. And yeah, I mean, in terms of its politics, you know, spot on. But I think if you literally thought that you had the bomb inside you. And, and, and mm. funnily enough, you know, it's a delusion that I've actually seen mm. people have. So it obviously is a concern that goes quite deep and quite far. Mm. Can you imagine actually what that's like? And, mm. and, and the person would be in a, quotes, catatonic state. And only later you'd find out, well, why, why was it you were sitting there not moving, not eating, not drinking? For hours on end mm. and he said well I thought if I moved I would set this bomb off now that's a horrible mm. state to be in it's not a sort of debating point mm. and if that person really did have thoughts about world peace they're not really gonna be able to express them while they're in that even say that he's using her situation then to make a kind of a rather obvious point but I think that was playing to the gallery yeah the evilness of politicians um well listen during an ayahuasca mm -hmm. ceremony I I believed that I had the holy grail inside me right it turned out that I didn't <laughs> it's, alas never mind oh, never mind yeah so there we go so time goes on mm -hmm. the book that surprisingly you know has this countercultural effect and propels him onto mm -hmm. the sort of stage which he goes with as you said mm -hmm. you, know, you know the 60s move on there is something which I think it would be good to talk about an important thing in the counterculture, in London's counterculture, mm -hmm. Kingsley Hall. This is a sidebar about Kingsley Hall. We've got Kingsley Hall and I've moved into it, Lang wrote to his colleague Joseph Burke, when he was granted a two-year lease in 1965. Others will be moving in in the next two or three weeks. I take it you'll pass the word around to relevant people. This is it. It was Lang and his colleagues living in the hall themselves with people in a state of psychosis as a commune. Under his guidance, the building became an asylum in the original sense of the word, a safe haven for the psychotic and the schizophrenic. There were no locks on the doors and no anti-psychotic drugs were administered. As a result, the hall became home to one of the most radical experiments in psychiatry where schizophrenic people were given the space to explore their madness and internal chaos. People who lived there were free to come and go as they pleased. There was a room, painted with esoteric symbols, meditating. There were therapy and role reversal sections. Dinners hosted by Lang and his colleagues, with visits from mystics, academics, hippies and celebrities. Play was encouraged, as was therapy with a regression to childhood. 
The most famous and first inmate was Mary Barnes, a nurse, who regressed to infancy for a time, smearing the walls of her room with shit, shouting out for attention and ending up being fed with a bottle. She later became a renowned artist and poet and the subject of a successful play. Controversially, several patients and people who worked at the hall were given high-grade LSD, which was still legal when the hall opened. The intention was to release their inner demons or buried childhood traumas. The experiment's reputation attracted drifters and dropouts, and at least once the house was raided by the drug squad. The activities of the residents in the experiment made the local East End London community largely hostile to the project, and there were regular reports of harassment. After five years in 1970, the project was wound up and Kingsley Hall was boarded up for a time. Here's Lang himself talking about the commune. In the late 50s and early 60s, a number of us who were working as psychiatrists in mental hospitals uh, became increasingly dissatisfied with uh, uh, the setting of the mental hospitals that used to uh, work. Since 1965, several of us uh, in London were able to set up uh, places where if we were psychiatrists we could live if we want and uh, if we were patients we could also live and anyone who lived uh, and who is uh, living now at, uh, in these uh, places we would get no encouragement for playing the part of a psychiatrist or playing the part of a patient. The position uh, here is live and let live. If you're, if you're interviewing a patient in a mental hospital uh, ward, then you have a key in, in your pocket to get out and the patient hasn't. The gulf in, in power, uh, in position, is enormous. If I really wanted to get to the bottom of, uh, in one lifetime, of uh, what we were uh, on about in attempting to uh, understand what uh, sanity is or uh, madness is and uh, who is sane, and if anyone, and who is crazy, if anyone, and what that distinction is, I have to come off my perch uh, and level out on a man-to-man -man basis. When I met another human being who was in a position of uh, being classified by uh, other people as uh, crazy. And on that man-to-man -man basis, on a level, uh, then I would take my chances and he would take his when we met. This was um, an experimental sort of commune hostel where people were allowed to just sort of be mad and were helped by other people in the mm. same circumstances rather than by uh, other professionals. Uh, some people are quite angry about not having conventional treatment in retrospect. Um, other people say, well, you know, some of the people in there, they were unusual, they were perhaps troubled, they were perhaps very creative, but they didn't really have schizophrenia or, or one of those illnesses that really um, is very difficult to sort of function with. Mm. So, you know, looking back in retrospect, it was probably not a very good experiment. Well, I'm going to challenge you a little bit mm. on that, right? Because what's interesting for me about it uh, is that he was taking his theories mm -hmm. and was actually 
getting down and dirty with them, mm. you know, rather than actually writing about them and, mm-hmm. you know, sitting on stages and preaching. Mm. Is This is actually where he got kind of involved quite deeply himself. And he was mm. very sympathetic towards his patients, yeah. wasn't he? So he lives there himself yes. with some of his colleagues, more controversial colleagues and mm. various other people, mm. artists. And it did become a kind of place, you know, where there's hippies that sort mm. of turn up and live there for all. There were kind of no rules. It was a commune, right, in this yes. kind of proper 60th sense. But the various people who had mental health uh, mm. issues were there too. And very controversially, of course, is that um, he's got Sandoz-grade uh, LSD there in the mm-hmm. fridge, which is available to anybody who wants to mm. take it, including the people who've got mental health problems. Mm. And a lot of them do. And then they, they live in this kind of, you know, there's no patients, there's no professionals, mm. we're living together, sort yeah. of thing. And he tries to get, a, in a kind of gonzo, immersive way, yes. to test out his theories um, by actually living and relating to the reality that these people are experiencing. Mm-hmm. The reason I said I'm challenging mm. is that because I've actually read a lot of very positive mm-hmm. uh, from, from ex-residents about it. Not all, okay. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and not and you know some just describing it, well, this is what happened to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not lionizing him necessarily. And as you say, when he kind of... I think his relationship broke up when he was there, didn't he? And after mm. five years of it or whatever it was, he was like, I'm done. Mm. And when he moved out, it kind of fell apart sort of yeah. thing. But to me, it seemed like a very brave, bold mm-hmm. experiment to take. Mm-hmm. Rash and possibly risky, mm. right? And it was in the 60s. It was a mm-hmm. time when those kind of norms were being challenged. Mm. thought there was something rather noble about that. Mm. Also something that's completely inconceivable now. Right. I take your point that he got in there as well. He li- he rolled mm. his sleeves up. He lived it as well, and and that was brave and that was um, laudable. As you say, it was risky, uh, and you're risking other people's health, and I think you're risking other people who are vulnerable. So it's all right about making a decision for your for yourself, but uh, um, other people might not have your robustness so i think it's too risky those people there are people who think that psychedelic drugs uh, remain uh, a really important avenue in, in mental health uh, and in in our own you know if you like spirituality or um identity and they would probably say it's it kept back the field from progressing because of that slightly risky approach mm-hmm uncontrolled approach that was taken then it set them back decades and only now we're doing the 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 evaluations in a more proper controlled way i'm a an academic as well as a clinician so i i approach this as i would a a piece of research where i want everything to be controlled i i want to know that something is working or not working i don't want to just think well it seemed to work for me mm. you know that's just not good enough yeah so i don't know what the academic analysis mm. of kingsley hall is maybe the, i don't know if there's even been one and mm. i take that point about risking other people's mm. um, health although people were there voluntarily and the doors sure. were open you could leave anytime you wanted to um and of course maybe what the point he would make is is that yeah, but psychiatrists have been risking other people's health for years by keeping them behind a locked door and plying them with yes. various treatments, which we've decided are good for them. Again, it's a fair point, but that, you know, two wrongs don't make a right, as they say. <laughs> psychiatrists mm. shouldn't have inflicted s- supposed cures on, on people without properly evaluating mm. them. Uh, but similarly, 
using very powerful mind mind altering mm. drugs or putting them in situations where they're very exposed mm. without really being sure what that's going to do mm. isn't right either and let's not overemphasize the the acid part of it that was part of it but it wasn't yes. like you know okay it's five o'clock everybody pass it around and get it down i mean the other parts of it which i thought were really interesting was this psychodynamic thing of art was an important thing mm. play was an important thing yeah. there is this story about lang and i don't know whether it actually is apocryphal or not but there was one particular woman there who was i suppose in some sort of psychotic state who was sort of sitting there naked and rocking back and mm. forth he takes his clothes off, sits next to him, mm-hmm. rocks back and forth, and after a certain amount of time, she starts to talk to mm-hmm. him. That side of what he did, being prepared to go with that, and being okay, I mean, you must have had it too in your practice, being okay mm-hmm. with being with quite difficult people, yeah. you know, uh, that takes a bit of guts, doesn't it, and a bit of patience. I mean, I think uh, that that was his strength and uniqueness that he he was able to sort of cast aside his own inhibitions uh, in a way to try and reach people to make contact and i think he probably had an extraordinary gift for Mm. doing that so i think the idea of using art to try and understand yourself and the world the idea of asylum needing a break from other things other people um, going at your own pace Mm. All of those things, I think, are are now commonplace Mm. in therapeutic environments. The one thing that I think has to be questioned is the other element in the Kingsley Hall experience was the idea of regression, which, again, comes from other kind of psychoanalytic theories, really. It wasn't that new, but the idea you have to sort of go back and become a a child again, crap anywhere, and you can just do Mm. anything, and then eventually you sort of come out of it. I think that's probably not very useful. And and yeah, people will do that if given the space. Mm. But it's probably more important to find how can I tether myself to the the real world and yet not feel that I'm completely alienated rather than how can I mm. just get as far away from it as possible. I did want to mention actually because it ties in with something which is in your book and something which and with one of your patients uh, is that mm. you, a young man who was going through some intense states. You go into the canteen or something with him and you play the piano and he plays the guitar, which yeah. sounded a bit Langian to me. <laughs> <laughs> he sort of started to get on a bit better, didn't he, as a consequence of you actually getting him out of the ward, as it were, and just yeah. playing music with him, right? Yeah, I mean, there was, yeah, there was an old beat-up, old grand piano in one of the lecture halls attached to the hospital, and this was a, a, a patient who was very restricted because had been quite aggressive and so wasn't allowed out of the ward. Um, and so just getting his first chance to go out, it thought I thought this would be quite a nice thing to do. Mm. And yeah, maybe maybe I was carrying on the spirit uh, of R.D. Lang, but it seemed quite natural and uncontrived. And I think in that it did lead to making a connection mm. that just sit, sitting down and saying, well, how are you feeling, mm. wouldn't have. Mm. And again, I think I think other therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, be well advised to sort of think outside of the box about making connections with people. Mm. But you don't actually have to take all your clothes off and... <laughs> that rocking back and forth? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's hear from Lang himself on this subject. Well, let me ask you, what if the drugs do work, if they do calm a person down and allow them to re-enter society, as we know lithium, a number of drug treatments do, 
if shock therapy does take a person out of deep depression, if mental institutions are a place for families to put frighteningly disturbed people, what's wrong with that? I don't think there's anything wrong with all that, as far as you've said it. The thing is, you asked yourself, what is this disturbance on a boat? What is the biofeedback? What is the um, cybernetic relationship of this disturbance in one person to the system that they're in? And you provide yourself with a larger context to to try to understand. And I I think that it's definitely true that uh, some people, they go over the hill, they go into the wilderness, they lose their bearings and lose their way, they become completely disoriented. I've been in a certain amount of that territory myself without being labelled insane. And I can sometimes, sometimes, uh, when a, you know someone has gone over the hill and got lost over there, I can sometimes go out and uh, hunt for that person and find them and meet them there and say, do you want to come back? Moving on with him then, I mean, so he brings out these other books, Politics of Experience, Birds of Paradise. He also starts to put out these rather strange and dour books of poetry knots and things, and he starts having a real pop of the family, doesn't he, as a sort yes. of institution. It almost sounds like sort of Khmer Rouge or something mm. at one point. Um, you know, the family comes in for a lot of beating, doesn't it? It does. Maybe reflecting his own experiences when he was a kid, I don't know, but... Um, but as you said, he goes on. He's on the world stage, isn't he? He's, yes. he's along with Timothy Leary, and um, he's mm. out there, isn't he, in America, and um, and thousands of people coming mm. to see him and stuff. Be interested to hear if you think of anything valuable came out of that period, which mm-hmm. was, as you say, when he's being asked questions about life, the universe, and everything, yeah. rather than about some of his patients. It shows that he does have, he did have an amazing intellect and breadth. But in general, I don't think it was that productive. The poetry, I think it was quite interesting. It's quite nice. And, and, you know, people have taken it up and put it to music and made theatrical works out of it. That shows that he was a very broad and uh, rounded person. But the kind of attacks on the family probably weren't very useful. We've talked about the whole idea that mental illness is, is a psychedelic journey I think that's quite questionable. His personal life is mm. rather odd, isn't it? Because it's a little bit like, uh, you know, Timothy Leary um, and some of the other kind of countercultural figures who were preaching love, but actually in their personal life, it seemed quite absent with the way that they treated their own families. Yeah. Obviously, been doing acid and various other things, I imagine, along the way, but um, alcohol becomes a big, bigger part of his life, mm. doesn't it, too? What do you think was going on there? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know enough about it, really, um, I'm, I, I read with great interest uh, the biography that his son Adrian mm. wrote, which is a really nice book. Um, and and Adrian tries to understand it, and I think he's very even-handed. But yeah, I think he got into the booze in a big way, and that really was his comeuppance. In fact, it was during an interview with Anthony Clare in the psychiatrist chair, he, me- he sort of mentions how much he's drinking and then someone listening dobs him into the GMC and says you know he's not fit to practice which was rather harsh and I GMC think is general medical the general council. medical council the sort of yeah the governing body mm. uh, that licenses doctors and I think in the end um, they didn't have 
a sufficient case against him but by then he sort of said all right well I'll, I'll, I'll give in my license mm -hmm. so it was a kind of a, a sad end yeah he went through several relationships uh, one of his children did suffer from severe mental illness possibly schizophrenia which his critics and enemies used very viciously against him rather than it just proving that none of us is immune from mental illness that it does sometimes run in families people need help and sympathy as do their families the irony of it was a rather tragic irony yeah, it almost had a kind of oh. Greek tragedy, didn't it, to it? And he wasn't able to help, no. really, despite his kind of experience and knowledge. Yeah. But they did use that against him, didn't they? they sort did. of proof, you know, to, as a stick to beat him with. It's quite interesting as well, because um, a few years ago now, David Bowie published a list of his 100 favourite books. Mm. But, and one of them, of course, is The Divided Self. Yeah. And, um, which is a strange one. You think, well, mm. why is Bowie reading that? And, of course... Mm. David Bowie's older brother, Terry, yes. um, was a schizophrenic, wasn't he? Yes. And actually uh, ended up committing suicide. And Bowie himself was very worried mm -hmm. because it seemed because of this possible hereditary yeah. link, right? I think he, I think he was a half brother. Half brother. That's um, it. And yeah, he suffers from schizophrenia and, and and took his own life. It must have played on his mind. But of course, Bowie was such an amazing artist. Whether it was due to that, probably not. He was interested in the bounds of sanity mm. and insanity mm. and obviously um, used that in a very creative way and pushed himself against those boundaries with and without drugs. So I think he, he's, he's an example of an artist who also showed no fear, but maybe because he knew what happens when it goes too far or maybe he just had the sort of strength of personality to withstand it that he remained with his feet on the ground. Mm. He remained such a productive artist throughout his life. You know, he was able to pull back, reflect on it, rather than be totally immersed. I mean, you could say maybe it's a bit being a bit romantic and over the top, but he did sort of act out his own divided self, didn't he? He'd like yes. the same, Ziggy. He Money played to with earth. all those ideas of identity mm. and who, who we really are. And if it's to be believed that perhaps he felt that he had to, as it were, kill Ziggy mm. before it went too far. Maybe he felt that, uh, you know, that's not, you can't sustain that in a healthy mm. way, that mm. idea that you're more than one person or mm. you're broken rather than a split personality. Your personality is sort of fragmenting. And of course, at the end, he was David Jones, wasn't he? And David Bowie, David Bowie himself was one, Indeed, of, one yeah. of the divided selves, as sort it were, of, right? Yeah, layers within layers. Mm. On the music front, uh, this is just a sort of anecdote, but mm -hmm. it's worth dropping in there. Again, it might be a kind of apocryphal tale, but there is a story that when um, Sid Barrett, the original singer for Pink Floyd, mm -hmm. um, went into madness, let's just call mm. it that in virtual commas, right? Uh, the, the rest of the band went to see Lang, and mm. in fact, they made an appointment right. for Sid mm. with Lang. Mm. Do you know that story? No, I don't. Um, yeah, it's, um, and that Lang said to them, apparently, Are you sure it's him that's mad? <laughs> but it, and it, it may be true, but it sounds a bit pat, doesn't it? It sounds a yeah. bit like the sort of thing that you think he would say. However, <clears throat> just creatively speaking, of course, Sid Barrett's breakdown and whatever it was that happened to him uh, became a main yeah. part of their ins inspiration over the following years, didn't it? If, yes. Including for their global dominating album, yeah. um, Dark Side of the Moon, which of course has got to attract us and them, which yes. is a big theme, was, not, was it not for, for yes. Lang? Yeah, definitely. Again, I don't know exactly what happened to Sid Barrett, but I believe that, you know, he did have 
schizophrenia and it mm. was a chronic condition some would say it was brought on with mm. by lsd whether he would have got unwell anyway or or maybe he wouldn't have so i mm. think there is there are some danger signs there it is amazing how creative and um original he was mm. in the early days of the pink floyd you know we've done a lot of formal research on people who have developed schizophrenia or other mental illness and have gone back to look at their school records and mm. their early behavior and and similarly there have been studies now where people have been followed up since birth huge populations and of course a few will end up developing mental illness and so you can see well what could we have seen this coming mm. what was the precipitating factors and what we find is that there are genetic factors there are substance misuse is a factor but usually the person is sort of beginning to find it difficult to keep up with their siblings with their peers long before they as it right. were break down and end up in psychiatric care whereas with with Sid Barrett you can see that mm. he was absolutely at his pinnacle he was at the top of his game he was brilliant and then it was a real crash mm. so that makes me think that the LSD mm. probably was a, a, a pathological factor in, in his in his life. So it may it may have emerged later anyway, but may that, have that that may have been a catalyst. Yeah, you know, for a vulnerable person. Yeah. I suppose that's been a a story, hasn't it, with artists? You know, quite often, yeah. the same uh, sort of psychic atmosphere could be capable of yes. producing great art or great suffering. But like we were saying, and with Van Gogh, when you sort of go over that threshold, the mm. art disappears, disappears as well, right? And maybe it's very difficult to yeah, come back as well. Exactly. Right, yeah. Looking back, you, yeah. know, you, you did the, you did the intro to the one itself. You didn't do the intro to the other <laughs> other books, the politics of experience and the bird of paradise and stuff. Maybe because you didn't feel there was the same sort of value. But looking back um, overall, I had an impression mm -hmm. which you maybe could confirm or, or deny is that the psychiatric uh, profession is embarrassed by him. Mm -hmm. Is that true? You wrote the introduction, but generally speaking, it's been difficult to find people within mm -hmm. the press to talk about him. Psychiatry definitely was embarrassed about him and, and wanted to distance itself mm -hmm. from him. But then time has passed and people like me, sort of senior people in the profession, have come out, let's say, and said, you know what, when we read the divided self all those years ago we were really inspired by it and it's probably something that led us to this profession and you know Anthony Clare was just mm. another example I mentioned so I think we've come round now to being less embarrassed and more honest about there were some great things that he wrote about were inspiring we can be a little bit objective and say no that stuff wasn't any good we know better now, but there's still a kernel of inspiration there in those, mm. I think, in those early books. Listen, let's move on to talk about your book, Into the Abyss. Um, I sort of perceived a few connections between you and Lang mm -hmm. as it happens. Mm -hmm. Grew up in Glasgow, educated there, came down to London and, you know, sort of entered the profession that way, yes. right? This is a bit ambitious to say this, but I wondered whether one way of seeing it is a kind of the divided self for our age. But it does mm. feel a bit like that. It's got case studies in it. Yeah. It's got a call to arms in some mm -hmm. way, you know, in a much more kind way than his work. But is that, could that be true? Well, it's overly flattering. I think the divided self 
was a real one-off. It changed the way people thought mm -hmm. right at the beginning of his career, as you said. You know, mm -hmm. he was it wasn't even thirty. Whereas this book has come sort of towards the end of my career. If I ever had any revolutionary zeal, it's sort of been <laughs> <laughs> smoothed away. You're not planning to start wearing beads and take acid not and sit on the stage. The well, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> but from the idea of being interested in people's experience, being interested in sort of the f philosophy of mind and brain. Mm. There is a thread there. But as I say, I don't want to compare myself in any way because I think he was a very important figure. When we came down to London, he came down to the Tavistock Institute and trained in psychoanalysis, whereas I came down to the, the Maudsley, which was another venerable institution, but very different. My my training was very much empirical, medicine-based, research-based, statistics, etc. Uh, and that's where we really diverged. For both of us, there's no going back. So I, I'm always looking over my shoulder. Is this really true? What's the evidence? Uh, I can't allow myself to just sort of go in there and just see how it feels. Um, maybe you lose something from that, but uh, you also lose something by you know, not looking at evidence. Can you talk a little bit maybe um, about some of the case studies that are in here, which I noticed, I know you're a big music fan as well, mm -hmm. I noticed the, um, the the chapter titles have uh, quite often have a, uh, yes. a, 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 a musical bent to them. I mean, Strawberry Fields Forever, Losing My Religion, Just the Two of Us, uh, Silent Music, and We Are Family. So um, there's <laughs> got a bit of disco in at the end there. Um, not sure about you are what you eat, but um, oh. maybe you could talk a little bit about one of the, case that is in there um the person who is in a coma or the person yeah. who believes that they're dead i mean why them the one who appeared to be in a coma uh but seemed to be aware uh that was a very interesting case that i still don't completely understand what was going on and and whether the person was really aware at all really challenges our thinking about what is consciousness and what is free will uh, the other case was very interesting. It was a, a young man who, youngish man who'd had uh, an accident, came off his bike and had a brain injury. And when he recovered, he thought that he had, maybe he was still dead. Maybe he was living in some kind of a twilight. And everything around him, it looked like the world, but there was something not quite right about it. It was fake. It was... Mm pretend it's an amazing state of mind to get into and then you realize well that's been described before uh, you know that's in the literature in the scientific literature as well as being in the arts literature so that i thought was was fascinating and tried to work out how you could come to that conclusion and it is something to do with how our memory um, can play tricks on us and when our memory is in parallel with how we're feeling we know that something is true. It's when the two things come together, it gives it that sense of reality. A certainty, yeah. Yeah. But when those two things diverge, you've got a kind of a reality that's a parallel reality. It's not really, is it really real? And uh, that's what this guy was going through. And it was really very interesting. And we were able to try and help him put the two bits together again. What happened? Well, he definitely uh, improved and was well enough to leave hospital. He had a very loving wife who looked after him, but she had to be the breadwinner. He wasn't really able to go back to his job. 
you know, he'd had a he'd had a serious brain injury, so mm. it wasn't that surprising. But at least he wasn't tortured by some of these uh, mm. beliefs. And what about the one in the coma? I mean, what happens there? Or not in the coma, in fact? This is where... Uh, it's a mystery, actually. Mm. Sometimes when you read case histories, it all sort of ends up sewn up and neat. But life isn't like that. And sometimes it doesn't quite work out. So this person did respond to ECT treatment that we were, we were speaking about. If it had been catatonia, which is a sort of recognized psychiatric condition, that does respond to ECT. So Catatonia he, is when somebody's apparently just asleep. Or their body is fixed, or mm. they're not apparently paying attention to what's going on. Mm. They're in their own world, as it were. Mm. Uh, unreachable in some Unreachable. And, and that's how she looked. And she wasn't able to feed herself or, or toilet herself or anything. So it was really very serious. After ECT, after a few treatments of ECT, she woke up and was able to talk and w w was able to describe what it was like. Unfortunately, it didn't last. And it, she went back into that sort of coma state. And yet her brain waves looked quite normal. It looked like she was aware, was awake. Her brain scans didn't show any damage. So it remains a bit of a mystery. So what do you do in a situation like that then? Well, again, you try and make a connection. You try and reach the person, uh, which we were able to do when, she's, when mm. she was talking. Since then, she's just gone back into her shell and, and isn't really communicating. The difference these days, maybe, than in the kind of ultra-scientific times, mm. is that don't assume that there's one cause the cause could be a brain injury like mm -hmm. you say it could be a it could be a disease it could be biochemistry mm -hmm. you know it could be something that happened to you you know some abuse when you were a child yeah. or it could be mysterious right yes there is no actual apparent cause and that seems to be quite a sort of big difference these days mm. that you would you would sort of see that the causes could be many and mm. could be interacting to bring about the state that somebody's in so I suppose the mm. treatments could be multiple too. Does that mean in terms of mental health, it's much, gets much, much more difficult to get funding for it because, you know, you break a leg, you do this, it's better, off you go. You've got these patients who we don't know the cause necessarily, we don't know what the cure is and how long it's going to take. But then that's the attraction, isn't it? You know, it's a real challenge to try and unpick what's going on. Mm. Um, you know, so that's what makes it such a, so intriguing. Um, I mean, there's, when you do research, you tend to pick on a particular avenue. You know, you're interested in early life experiences or you're interested in genetics. Um, and it is sometimes difficult to put all of those threads together um, because they each tend to sort of go off onto their mm. own. Uh, and so that is difficult. Um, the funding for research is, um, well, a lot of people are talking about mental health in a way they didn't before. It, it is up the priority. It does get the spotlight. Mm. But when you look at the amount of money that's put towards psychiatric research as opposed to other medical conditions, it's, it's woeful. It's a tiny proportion. So it's nowhere near enough. Um, but the treatments... The psychological treatments, the pharmacological treatments are getting better and better, more effective. So I think it's a, a very optimistic mm. place to be. As we come to the end, you mentioned earlier that you think that the 
the role of psychedelics in psychiatry and psychology and therapy may have been set back by Kingsley mm-hmm. Hall and things like that, right? Mm. But they are coming back, aren't they? They yeah. are sort of, it's being reevaluated and stuff. How do you feel about that? What's your things about, about I, that? I think that's really quite exciting. Still remains controversial. Well, there's an accusation that it's being overhyped and others are saying, no, it's, it's, it's okay. It Maybe it's a little step forward, but it's not a revolution. But that will work itself out because we're, we're looking at evidence, we're doing trials, uh, we're looking at scientific uh, inroads. And mm-hmm. so, th- you know, th- that gives you answers. It's not mm-hmm. just about debate. Uh, and yeah, there have been some quite well-conducted clinical trials that look promising for people with depression who haven't responded to conventional antidepressants. It's a big, big area. And I, I think uh, we need to look at new avenues. The idea, which again goes way back to the early days of psychedelia, that it's a, it's a sort of adjunct to psychological therapies, that it may not be a cure in its own right, but it opens the way for other kinds of cure. Again, I think that's a perfectly reasonable hypothesis. I don't think it's been proven yet. I like the idea that psychological and biological treatments, interventions can work together and be more than the sum of their parts. Have you had any psychedelic experiences? No, I haven't. Would you consider it? I'm a bit overcautious <laughs> and inhibitive. You've read too many books no, on the subject. No. I mean, like like Lang, I'll have a, I'll have the odd whiskey, but uh, <laughs> that's about it for me. Well, the odd whiskey sort of unfortunately, uh, in his case, to me that he sort of tipped backwards into his own darkness, didn't he? I actually met Adrian Langson and he seemed to me to be somebody who was a bit divided, let's put mm-hmm. it that way, uh, that he kind of sort of was a bit in awe and proud of his dad, but also was very angry with him because he wasn't a good dad, actually. Yeah. And in some ways, when it comes down to it, there is a sort of, you've got to practice what you preach, right? Yeah. I think the children of famous people <laughs> is very, very difficult. It's very mm. difficult for them. On the, on the one hand, you're in awe of this great mm. person that your mum or dad is, and yet you just want them to be your dad. Yeah. Well, that's what Adrian said to yeah. me. He says you, you don't want to share your dad with the world. Yeah. yeah. You don't want strangers coming up to you telling you what your dad mm. was like. So um, a deeply flawed man, but fascinating, Tony, would you say, yes. Lang? And uh, do you think his sort of legacy will... Has contributed something which will live on, counterculturally well, speaking. I, well, I, I I hope he's got a legacy on nudging the mainstream mm. in a direction that's a bit more humane, it's a bit more compassionate. Mm. Uh, I think psychedelic medications may yet prove to have some benefit in opening the doors of perception, so to speak. Tony, thanks very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Thank you very much, Stephen. Oh man, it's a privilege to do this. I mean, I really feel like I'm getting the education that I never had. I hope you feel so too. We live in an age, it seems to me, where it's becoming easier to talk about mental health issues, which is such a good thing. And I'm sure it's down to people like Anthony who are helping transform not just the treatments, but the conversations around these sensitive issues. There's counterculture in that, I'm sure. I mean. As Lang was pointing to, you can't separate our internal state from the state of the external culture, right? We live in anxious, crazy times. Everything's speeding up. It's not really any surprise we feel anxious, crazy and slightly out of control sometimes. So thanks to Tony, 
thanks to you for listening. You can get The Divided Self at any good bookshop. It is a bit of a difficult read, I found, um, unlike Tony's book, Into the Abyss, which is a real pleasure and thought-provoking and moving in turn. But we're going to finish now, and I thought we'd finish with a little recording of Lang playing the piano with his son sitting on his knee. This is it's a long way to Tipperary. See you next time. Thank you.